Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, the start of hurricane season and Puerto Rico's state of readiness. Plus, in a dozen years, it went from being a modest blog to a digital dynamo with an audience of 40 million worldwide. We'll hear how Remezcla did it. And then, Brooklyn's sartorial geek. Hi, welcome to the show. I'm Ross Tuttle, sitting in for Ashley Ford. You know, Friday was the official start of hurricane season. Not something that gives us much pause up here in Brooklyn. We haven't had a major one in five-plus years, though it's been said that New York is the worst place to be for hurricanes, not for frequency, but for impact because of our unique geography and propensity to flood. And now, climatologists have, of course, said there will be increased frequency with major floods every five years. That means we're due. But like climate change itself, we don't seem to worry ourselves with such matters unless they're knocking at the door. But in Puerto Rico, there are no such luxuries, considering that the island still hasn't fully recovered from Hurricane Maria, and there's significant worry about what will happen if another one strikes this year. To talk more about this, we have back on the show Elizabeth Yampierre, Executive Director of Uprose. Elizabeth, thanks for joining us again. Well, thank you for having me. So, real quick, just to talk about the study that came out last week, the Harvard study, uh, that determined there were roughly 4,000 more Hurricane Maria-related deaths than the official count. Why such a disparity, and why is it important to establish an accurate death toll? Well, it, the, the number is actually closer to 5,000, and, and there are some studies that show that the numbers may be as high as 8,500, and I think it's really important to note that uh, this is a humanitarian crisis of epic proportions. This number exceeds what happened in New Orleans, uh, what happened in the World Trade Center when there was that uh, that, that attack on, uh, on the United States. Um, mm and that the response from the media has been like cricket. So I really appreciate uh, the fact that you are reporting on this and that you're putting attention on the fact that so many Puerto Ricans have, have perished mm. and, um, and that, that that is important to you. So thank you so much for that as a Puerto Rican. I'm deeply grateful. Oh, sure. Um, I, th I, think the, I think there's a lot of reasons for the disparity. Uh, one is that uh, Puerto Rico has not gotten the support or the attention from the U.S. government that it deserves to. Um, you know, we're talking about 3.5 million citizens that have been enduring neglect and austerity and incompetence now for a while. Um, mm. The resources that typically go to a place where uh, there is disaster have not come to the United States. They've pulled out support, uh, and they're actually threatened to evict people who are now in shelters here in the United States mm. in upcoming weeks. So um, being able to tell the story of what actually happened in Puerto Rico would also mean having to explain why resources haven't been allocated in Puerto Rico. Um, people in extreme weather events die for a lot of different reasons, lack of medical care, uh, vulnerable physical conditions, toxic exposure, um, extreme stress. The suicide levels are up to 55 percent in Puerto Rico, 55 percent higher. Wow. Um, and so... Um, you know, the infrastructure is weak uh, and in some places really fragile. Uh, and so it could be that you fell and hurt yourself and didn't get access to care. It could be that, mm. you know, you're someone who uh, has diabetes and couldn't access your medicine. Uh, it could be that you're an elderly per person who um, 
was not able to get access to equipment because there was no electricity. And in some parts of the island, there hasn't been electricity for over eight months, if anybody can imagine that. Hmm. So there's a lot of different reasons, and a lot of them are documented in that study, and that's just the beginning. Hmm. Um, it's important for people to understand that that number is going to change. That's just right. a baseline right now. Wow. So, um, so, yeah. From what you're saying, there's something we can learn that will help with preparedness for future events like this by understanding what happened, what transpired, and having that accurate count. Well, you know, one of the best ways to prepare for ex recurrent extreme weather events is to be, have people engaged and to have people and, and to be rebuilding um, sustainable, um, resilient communities and to invest in the front line in leading in that. Um, the thing about extreme weather events is that it is uh, unpredictable. Right. And so it's really important for people who um, who are going to be faced with um, with exposure to toxics and toxicants, and uh, as they are in Puerto Rico, where there are tw 23 super funds, or people who are living under these conditions, to have the resources so that they can prepare for that future. Hmm. Uh, and, and enough isn't being done, uh, certainly not in Puerto Rico, and not even here, I, I think, in the city of New York, to prepare us for what's unpredictable. Right. In your in introductory remarks, you mentioned that we had not had a hurricane since... Um, since uh, Sandy, Sandy was a superstorm, right? It wasn't right. even a hurricane. Sure. But we just, but we just had a tornado recently, and so now tornadoes in Brooklyn have become normalized because now we get them on a regular basis, which is insane. Um, that you know, the first time you have a tornado, people think, oh my goodness, there's a tornado in Brooklyn, and then after you've had the fourth one, it's like, oh, you know, we've had a tornado in Brooklyn. Right, right. Um, so none of this is normal, and all of this is climate change, and and I, and I think very few people are ready. Uh, to endure and survive the changes that are coming. Wow. So hurricane season just started. I wonder if things are different this year as the island gets ready for what might come for that unpredictability. No, um, the island is not ready. There are still roads that are in disrepair. Uh, there are still uh, communities off the grid. There's still a, a grid that is old and fragile uh, and isn't and isn't up and running. Um, there's still a lack of access to medical care uh, and clean water. There's still uh, t 23 super funds that were hit by a hurricane for. Uh, cat uh, category for hurricane, uh, and there's you know there's contaminants on the on the soil and in the water. Uh, there's an ash power plant that has spread ash hmm. uh, miles down from its location, and that hasn't been cleaned up. It literally lay, uh, landed on rooftops. So so it's far from ready. It hasn't right. even gotten to the point of providing basic services. Uh, eight months after the hurricane, wow. far from ready. And so, so you kind of predicted my one question I was going to ask if Puerto Rico was getting the attention it needs and deserves from the federal government. My guess is the answer would be no. But I want to jump into a question about the National Puerto Rican Day Parade, which is coming up this Sunday. How will this year's celebration be different? I know that there has been an effort to squash political uh, discourse, and this is hyper-political. Uh, there is no way to get away from political discourse. I think the entire parade should be a direct action. Mm. Uh, I think uh, a, a, the entire parade should be a message to the federal government about the violation of human rights in Puerto Rico and the value mm. of life in communities where it's people of color. Um, so I, I, you know, my, I have very obviously very strong opinions about that, but I, I, um, I don't think that uh, it should be cause for celebration. It should be honoring the lives of the close to 5,000 people that have been documented as having passed. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and it should be a reminder that, um, you know, that if we don't take care of the most vulnerable of places like Puerto Rico, um, then the, the, all of our communities are, are literally in danger. Um, so, so the parade, I hope, will be sending a very different kind of message this year. Certainly we are going to be in it, mm. and we're going to be delivering a message from a climate justice perspective, uh, and we hope that everyone does that as well because it, it is uh, very difficult for us to be going down Fifth Avenue celebrating uh, when so many lives have been lost and so many lives uh, are going to be lost by right. the end of right. this process. Well, Elizabeth, I'm afraid we're going to have to end things here, but thank you so much for coming on today on such short notice, and we'll look forward to having you back on the show soon. Thank you, and thank you so much for this. You, you have no idea how much we appreciate this. Well, thank you. Bye-bye. Coming up, a digital platform based here in Brooklyn that seeks to elevate the creative expressions of bicultural Latinos in the U.S. And later in the show, the Sartorial Geek. I like this line about our next subject, so I'm going to borrow it. If NYC-inspired American polyculturalism has a look, a sound, a taste, a smell, it's here. That's what Full Color Future said about Remezcla. Now, I'd like to know how smell enters the mix when talking about a digital platform, maybe some new technology about which I'm not aware of. In any case, this site is interested in expression. First, it was music. After all, Remezcla is Spanish for remix. And recently, it expressed support and encouragement for the response to the last month's bigoted attack by a city lawyer on Spanish speakers at a Manhattan lunch spot. That response was a mariachi band-fueled block party that showed up outside his door. It was a warming kind of thing, as are many of the things they do, or funny, or clever, or biting. Ashley recently spoke with Remezcla's editor-in-chief, Andrea Gumpf, about their work and their recent growth. Here's that conversation. Thank you so much for being here. I can't tell you how happy I am to have you sitting here. Remezcla is life. Oh, thank you so much, and thank you so much for having me. How did you even become aware of Remezcla immediately? So the story goes like this. I had just moved to New York mm-hmm. in 2008, um, and I actually I wanted to be a writer, but, you know, recession grad kid, so I, I couldn't find a job in media at the time. Right. And I took a job uh, at an immigration law firm. But I was going out all the time and trying to meet people and be in the cultural scene. Oh, yeah. And, Girl, this is New York. Uh-huh, exactly. So I went out one night to a bar in Williamsburg, uh, that actually doesn't even exist anymore. It's called. It was mm-hmm. called Rose Live, mm-hmm. and just happened to be there when these uh, DJs, who at the time had a party called Que Bajo, mm-hmm. um, were playing. And they just started their party. There were like ten people in the room. No one was there, but the music was so amazing, and I'd never heard anything like it before. And it was taking all of these old Colombian cumbia rhythms, but mm-hmm. then kind of bringing in um, more contemporary sounds. And anyway, I was vibing, and I just struck up a conversation and was like, what is this? And they told me that um, I could find their event listings on a website called Remezcla, and Mm -hmm. that this website had a lot of other event listings similar to what they were doing. So I went home and I checked it out, and it just kind of blew my mind. Wow. I had never really seen a, a digital platform that I felt I really connected to as a U.S. Latina, yes. um, a voice that I thought was just really fresh and interesting, and it was covering all of this emerging culture that I had never 
heard of or you know had access to before mm -hmm. um, and so that's really how I found out about it I became obsessed and I basically harassed them until they hired me <laughs> <laughs> so I mean so what immediately drew you in mm -hmm. was the music yes and from the music then you were introduced to the site what was it like when you reached out to the site were they immediately responsive? no it took a while <laughs> um, they had a careers pay you know section mm -hmm. that was never updated um, so they never had any listings there and uh, you know finally I, I saw that they were looking for freelance writers and I submitted uh, they brought me in for an interview, but that was after multiple times of trying to reach out. Right. Um, so it took a while. Uh, I sent this very passionate cover letter about why I felt so identified by their work and why right. I really wanted to get involved. And, and they brought me in, and I just clicked with the team. And um, I was pretty green, to be honest, but they right. gave me a job, and that was about six years ago now. Sounds kind of meant to be, to mm -hmm. be perfectly honest. It was, honest. yeah. And, you know, coming from 2006... Mm -hmm. I think is when Romesco and then yes. like and I mean where they were like putting things on Craigslist mm -hmm. to now mm -hmm. you've been a big part of that growth right yes, yes when I started uh, Romesco was still primarily a local blog so mm -hmm. they had an event calendar uh, it was similar to what Time Out New York um, right. had and Village Voice this was really before social media was providing event discovery or even event posting right. uh, capabilities right so this was really the only place you could go to find sort of underground Latino cultural event listings uh, and that was a big part of what the platform did and then there were blogs that were you know also kind of expanding on covering local culture um, so my first my job title when I started was city editor and it was my job to maintain that event calendar Wow, wow. and then um, you know I started being like well I think we could also try to do this and I had all these ideas about ways that we could expand um, and then you know as the team grew a little bit uh, working closely with our former creative director kind of relaunched the the site um, mm -hmm. we had an old kind of blog role that was really outdated, so we relaunched it to the site you have, or one version prior to the site you have now, right. um, and also launched all the new content verticals, and um, so we created a film section, and a sports section, and a food section, and all of these other parts of the culture that we wanted to kind of expand our storytelling into. You built it out. We did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like that. You took it from a blog to a platform, mm -hmm. and I really dig that. What can you tell us about creating Latinx-focused content for specifically the handheld audience? Because now everything's on the phone, yes. right? Um, well, you know, in some ways it's intuitive because, you know, I think I, I grew up on the Internet. and mm -hmm. um, Me too. And so in some ways it's mirroring the way that I'm my own consumption habits. Mm -hmm. um, obviously those continue to change, so you have to kind of stay abreast and, and stay in touch. Yes. Um, but, yes, you know, obviously we've when we started again, um, we didn't even have a mobile-optimized website, so that was something that we thought about a lot, and we're focused a lot more right now on creating a product that works really well on the phone, mm -hmm. that showcases content really well. You know, we want people to come to our site who discover us and be able to see all the other kinds of great stuff we do and make it easy for them to find and see. Right. Um, you know, increasing our creation of video content, um, expanding into all of the other platforms that people who, you know, are sort of mobile-first are on, on Instagram, on Twitter, on all these other things, you know. Right what you see a lot of other digital media outlets. All the stuff yeah. that I'm on, to yes. be perfectly yes. honest, and where all my friends are mm -hmm. and how we keep up with each exactly. other. Exactly. How important is virality to you guys? Obviously, digital media right now is in a tough spot because mm -hmm. you're, uh, 
you don't really have a direct relationship to your reader. It's mediated right. through platforms like Facebook or like Google. Right. And so certainly there are some strategies or ways to optimize your content to try and get it to the people who are on those platforms. Mm -hmm. And depending on the platform, that changes. I think there is a danger um, to letting that data completely guide your editorial decisions because it really homogenizes all the stories that you see on the internet. Mm -hmm. um, so I think focusing only on what is going to go viral can sometimes lead to low-quality content, um, yes. storytelling. Mm -hmm. And it also doesn't really help you build a lasting connection with people. Um, right. Oftentimes, I think you'll find that uh, people don't remember where they first saw a viral story. Mm -hmm. It's not like they were really able to build a relationship and say, this is a place that I come to for X kind of storytelling. Right. Um, and so gearing your entire strategy around that, I think, uh, is maybe da is dangerous, and it doesn't really help you build a brand over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. uh, I think everyone at Remesco views this as a long-term commitment. You know, we're in this to change the way the world looks at Latino culture. Right. Um, and so I think, obviously, having people read your content when you're an ad-supported platform is important, because it's right. your business model. Yes, yeah, it's a business but, model. But, um, but, but I don't think— relationship building. Relationship building, more than your brand building, building. Yes. creating quality content, yes. a lot of which— I think, um, you know, can be evergreen is definitely an important part of, of what we do. And I, I wouldn't say that we're solely focused on, on viral stories. We've had stories go viral. Absolutely. Um, I think you guys actually got in touch after the Aaron Schlossberg story, we which did go super did. viral. We um, you know, okay, so I actually—that's something that I want to get to, because the Aaron Schlossberg story and, like, the block party that happened outside <laughs> his apartment building— all of those things, just massive, hilarious, and to be perfectly honest, feels a little bit necessary. Yes. How does it feel for you to be leading this platform? It was—it made me so happy. I mean, yeah. you know, I think the way that whole thing unfolded— was a testament, I think, to the humor and the resilience and the creativity of our community. And so it was wonderful, I think, that the world got to see that. Talk to me about how it, how it unfolded. So Aaron Schlossberg is an attorney, a Manhattan attorney, uh, and he was caught on video in a Midtown salad spot, uh, really just going off because he heard several of the employees speaking in Spanish to a customer who was mm -hmm. a Spanish-speaking customer. Right. Uh, so he's caught on camera, essentially flipping out, um, saying, this is America, you're speaking Spanish, you're speaking Spanish, I bet all of you are undocumented, I'm calling ICE on you, you shouldn't be speaking this language mm. in the U.S., just saying a lot of extremely mm -hmm. discriminatory, bigoted, um, horrible things. And so there was a clip of this that we saw making the rounds on Twitter. And the truth is, you know, I think every day, every day there are clips like this that come across our desk. Uh, you know, this is a this is a really tense time in our country, and every day we're weighing whether or not we're going to talk about this because I also want Remesco to be a place where people um, feel affirmed about you know who right. we are and what we have to offer, and we're not yes. only focusing on these types of stories. But this one just felt particularly egregious because we're in New York. Like yes. Remesco's headquartered in New York, a yes. quarter of the city's population are Spanish speakers. It's two right. million people. It was right. almost just absurd. Yes. And so we wrote about it, and it really—we um, made a video, we wrote about it. Mm -hmm. It all just super blew up, and, um, you know, the Internet did its thing. At the time that we saw this video, his—he was unidentified. Right. It didn't take long before people found his, uh, his 
law firm's page, mm -hmm. where I think the outrage escalated because he proudly advertised himself as a Spanish-speaking attorney who I could offer services exactly to the Spanish-speaking community. Yeah, like, that's when it turned up. exactly because everybody was already kind of like this guy is canceled. Mm -hmm. But when that happened, but when he was like, "I speak your language," I think they were like, "Okay, this is just a bad. He doesn't." Yeah. So people started camping out outside his office. Yes. And then after they wouldn't let him in his office anymore, they started. Um, th that's where this this protest idea, which I thought was so brilliant, um, you know, which was just to stage a huge party outside his apartment building, mm -hmm. a, a celebration of Latino culture. They had mariachis. They had yes. people dancing merengue. <laughs> Somebody yes. donated a ton of free tacos, and they were handing tacos out to everybody. And everybody was just dancing and having a great time. And it really felt like a moment where New Yorkers came together and where they turned a hateful a hateful man's um, sort of bigotry into a joyous celebration of we won't that. stand for it. <laughs> I love it. Those are definitely one of those times I'm like, ooh, I love this mm -hmm. song. Mm -hmm. I really like the way this turned out. Can you tell me what do you have in mind for the future of Remescla? When you think a year, five years down mm -hmm. the line, like what do you want people to think of when they hear that name? Well, I think my dream, you know, I think if we did our job well. Mm -hmm. My dream is that Latino culture will be valued at the same level that people value sort of mainstream Anglo culture. Um, you know, that is something that uh, gets exported all over the world. Mm -hmm. I, an analogy I give is, you know, when you go to an Italian restaurant, nobody bats an eyelash if they're charging you $35 for a plate of pasta, even though the ingredients are some of the cheapest ingredients, yep. you know, pasta and tomato sauce. It's very cheap to make, but the perceived value of this is elite. Um, mm -hmm. If somebody tries to charge you more than $5 for a taco, it's like outrage, like how right. dare you? Um, and I think this, this example just speaks to the fact that people don't value the culture that we create in the same way and on the same level. Mm -hmm. uh, and so my objective and our objective at Ramaskla is to really drive the narrative of the value of our of our culture, of all mm -hmm. of our creative expressions, um, that we do dope things, too. Right. Uh, and it's not only for Latinos, it's for everybody to, you know, partake in. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's why uh, this moment in music is exciting, because we're starting to see Latino artists really yes. um, get traction and get recognized outside of just uh, sort of their own lane. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's my dream. And, and in any way that sort of culture is made, whether it's through content, whether it's through TV and film, whether it's through uh, events mm -hmm. and festivals, anything that really is kind of driving that is where I right. think we want to be. Right. And how do you think, if someone came to you right now and was like, okay, right now, tell me what Romescla is, what do you do? What, have, how would you say that? Yeah, we have a hard time getting the elevator pitch right. I, I usually refer to it as a platform that is trying to elevate the creative expressions of young Latinos. Yes. So, um, again, I think of that platform as being, we tell stories, we create experiences in any sort of formats that that can be. You create gifts? Yes, we create gifts. I love the <laughs> gifts. I love the gifts. I love the uh, ignores you in Spanish with yeah. the uh, window that yeah. goes up and from, the, tele yeah. from the Telenova. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, my God. I love those. She is an icon. How, talk to me about, like, how did that come about? Because now I see people sharing those all the time, yes. and they're amazing. Amazing. So, Soraya Montenegro is a extremely iconic 
telenovela villainess. Mm -hmm. She was the villain in a telenovela called Mariela del Barrio, which mm -hmm. um, aired, I think, sometime in the 90s. So people in their 20s and 30s probably grew up seeing that being played in their household, right. um, whether they were watching it or their parents or grandparents were watching it. Mm -hmm. um, and somehow, uh, the character kind of got a second lease on life when, I think in its original stage, people were watching this as genuine entertainment, and then I think right. as we got older, we revisited some of these scenes, and they're just so <laughs> over-the-top and insane that you can't help but laugh. Right. Um, and there's a very, very famous scene where uh, this character is basically, she attacks a young woman in a wheelchair, she slaps an old lady and fells her to the ground, she's like stabbing this other dude with scissors. It's like a seven-minute scene and it's outrageous. So that sort of started—it uh, kind of had a comeback when reaction gifts started becoming a thing, when people were sort of creating edits of clips. Right. And really, um, it took on a life of its own for a generation who saw it when they were little and now have used it to proudly claim yes. um, a connection to, to that sort of—in a sense, I think it's become sort of a pan-Latino mm -hmm. uh, uh, moment, because no matter your nationality— uh, or where in the country you grew up, likely you're familiar with this story and with this character. So it's a it's something it's a, a shared bit of humor that connects everyone. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Thank you so much for yeah. being here today, Andrea, for talking to me about it. Thank you this. so much for having me. It's been fantastic. Delightful. with shirts with quotations and then decided she had more to say than could fit on someone's front in large font. So she started a magazine called The Sartorial Geek with an emphasis on the geeky lifestyle. What is a geeky lifestyle? What makes someone a geek? After all, aren't we all geeks in some way? That's what we're going to get to the bottom of with Jordan Ellis, owner of the store, Jordan Denae, and editor-in-chief of The Sartorial Geek. Welcome, Jordan, to 112BK. Thank you so much. So tell me, are you The Sartorial Geek? Technically, I started too, um, and then my college bestie Liz Crowder joined me because she's oh. actually knows about like writing and editing. Right. So right. once we got into print, I needed help. <laughs> I see. So you guys are both geeks, but what are your geek credentials? I mean, we don't really like having credentials. It's just like if you are into the culture and into the fan, if you're a fan of things. Uh -huh. um, so it's not like you have to, there are rules you have to follow. So is that the thing? It's like if you're a fan of things, if you follow things, if you're kind of uh, obsessive about things yep. like maybe comic books or fashion or things like that, you qualify as a geek? Yeah, movies, pop culture, anything. Um, and like any level, you can be a baby geek or like have been a geek for your whole life. It either, either is cool. So kind of like if you geek out on something, you're, Absolutely. you're a geek. So, are you a fashion geek? Actually, not really. No. Um, which is why I love getting into something new um, because I like fashion, but it's not like my passion. My passion is people and like pop culture and stories. Uh -huh. So, the fashion is fun, but like this is this is what I love right. the most. Communicating. Yeah, and, yeah, and being absolutely. Able to communicate with people. Cool. But you got your degree in in elementary education, right? Yep. But yet, which is a profession education that needs our best and brightest, yet you decided to make t-shirts. Yep. <laughs> Talk to me about that. Yeah, um, I got halfway through my degree, realized it wasn't what I wanted to do, and then I love kids and I love students, um, so we like try to work and support with support teachers and support like 
the future, but not by me being a teacher. Right. It just wasn't gonna happen. But your shirts aren't even for kids, or are they? We have some you for do. kids. Yeah. Have some onesies. I've yeah, yeah, yeah. We do. We do have onesies. I should have ordered some in advance. Yeah. <laughs> Cool, you're wearing what, Clever I'm Girl? I'm wearing Clever Girl this right now, yeah, your... this is brand new. Oh, it's brand new. Yep. I, saw, I think I saw one online. Yeah, okay, yeah, it just cool. came out a couple days ago. You're already advertising. What are some of your favorites? I love this one. I love anything that is inspired by a female character. That I mean, just personally, I love when there are like really cool female characters in pop culture, so mm -hmm. anything that's like inspired by a really powerful woman <laughs> is one of my favorites. And who's this inspired by? This is... So we did a collection with a best-selling author, Sam Maggs, mm -hmm. who wrote Fangirl's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh -huh. So she put together five, like, descriptors of geek girls, and this is one of them. So we have clever girl, complex female character, manic pixie scream girl, just kind of, like, plays off of mm -hmm. geek culture and feminism. I read somewhere you wanted to combine geeky and feminine products together. Yeah. So is that kind of how you're doing that? Yeah, absolutely. It's becoming more popular now, but when I started, there wasn't a lot, really. Uh -huh. So like, if you like to look cool or be like subtly nerdy and didn't want a huge, mm. maybe like a huge Darth Vader on your right. you know, shirt that you wanted to walk around with, mm. um, so you still wanted to like be a presentable woman <laughs> out right. in the world, but be subtly nerdy. That's what we're trying to do. Was there sort of this evolution or trend? Because, you know, there was a time when retro T-shirts were really in, and the retro T-shirts kind of had those bold decals, and you would see a big kind of glow, and a kind of shiny Darth yep. Vader or something like that, and they'd even have these materials on them. Is this kind of an evolution of that? Now we're coming up with our own expression in our own way where we can kind of throw out the retro stuff? I mean, I think that stuff is still cool sometimes, but I like that there's more of it. So mm -hmm. even if people still love that, that's great. But mm -hmm. maybe not everyone loves that for every situation. Like if you want to be able to wear something, if you have a more casual work environment mm -hmm. and you want to be able to wear it to the office, mm -hmm. you probably can't wear the same thing you wear on like right. a Saturday or right. to the gym. <laughs> sure, sure. You have an actual brick and mortar store, right? I don't. Oh, you don't. I do okay. not. You're selling these online. Yep. But then you also decided to make a magazine. Yeah. How did that evolution go? Yeah, so I love the clothing company, um, but as I was doing it for the past seven years, I realized my favorite part was interacting with the customers. So, like, I loved selling things because then I got to meet the people I was selling them to or meet people I collaborated you with. Feel like door-to-door, -door, like you deliver your... Comic-cons, yeah, <laughs> that's how we did it. So then I was like, I can't really do more of that with T-shirts. I want to be able to talk to people more, I want to have a podcast, I want to like interact, I want to support other people. Mm -hmm. So the magazine and like separating the brand a little bit was the way we figured out how to do that. Mm -hmm. So we can support the community and like talk to more people and work with more people, work mm -hmm. with writers and designers, and there wasn't really a way to do that with just the fashion right. angle. So. Hmm. That worked out really well. So it's like multimedia. Yeah. So what's the focus of the magazine and the podcast? It's, I mean, it's geeky lifestyle, but like you said, that isn't really a term that means anything yet. Like, it's kind of new. Mm -hmm. um, so it's basically like how to be a geek in the real world. So if you grew up with, like, a favorite story and it follows you through your whole life, like, how does that, how do you think about that? Or, like... How do pop culture and movies relate to what you're doing now? Or people who get to work in those industries, mm -hmm. we get to talk to them. Especially people behind the scenes, that's my favorite. Like, right. not just the people on screen, but, like, people working cameras or people working lighting or people doing scripts who maybe don't have, like, 
a huge focus pointed at them right. all the time. That's mm. that's our favorite stuff. Right, getting get into bit. the weeds of things. Oh, interesting. I mean, maybe those guys are the biggest collectors, and they've got the stacks of those scripts or the yeah. figurines or whatever, the memorabilia from the movies or something. Like and that. are doing some of the hardest jobs. Yeah. We just don't always notice. Uh -huh. So, the expression or when people say, "Let your freak, fra freak flag <laughs> yeah. fly." I don't know if you're helping people let their geek flag fly. Trying to, uh -huh. and trying to make it, I mean, most of us who are my age, if we were nerds growing up, like, it wasn't really cool, so we mm. maybe have either, like, baggage about how hard that was, or just felt lonely, when those kinds cool of things. When was it cool being a nerd growing up? I mean, I don't know. I want it to be for the kids that are doing right. it now, so that's kind of... You know, not that necessarily it'll be cool, but that like mm -hmm. you'll be able to find other people doing it with you right. because that was that's hard sometimes. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you're the editor of the magazine. Liz and I both are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I saw I was looking through the table of contents in the, your latest issue, which what just came out, right? Yeah, like two days ago. Oh, cool. Yeah. And there's one. It's called the couple that cosplays together and yeah. sort of stays together. Yeah, right? yeah. Tell me about that. So they're friends who I just met. Same thing through the t-shirt company. They came up to my booth, they're fans and customers, um, and they are a couple. They actually recently got married, and they are talking about like not only being able to dress up together, but as two people, if you want to like pick something from the same movie, mm -hmm. the compromises that come where it's like, you will do your thing, and then we'll do my thing, or like how to find how to find characters that you both relate to and love. So it's just kind of their process of like, how they literally make their costumes and then how they pick the characters they want and then how they how they feel when they're wearing them together. And so the big photo in there you have is of Han and Leia. Yeah. Is that, or is that the couple that Yeah, that's you? the couple, yeah. Oh, cool, we'll have to show that. Um, Absolutely, they're and, very cool people too, yeah. so. Okay, cool. And so just a couple of sort of housekeeping things. There's a, a happy hour coming up, is that true? Yeah, so at Word Bookstore mm -hmm. um, in Greenpoint, we're doing a an event once a month. It's usually the fourth Friday of mm -hmm. the month, unless there's like a big Comic-Con or like a movie release <laughs> that no one will come. Um, so the official dates are on our site, but yeah, uh, the the magazine release party is this Friday from mm -hmm. seven to nine, um, and then we have other nerdy events every month. So did you guys like cool. you ever co-book it and you're like, oh shoot, like solos out tonight, we can't have this. Our night. first event, which was last month, was supposed to be the night solo came out, and oh, we had to move oh, it to another day. Oh. At least we caught it. Like oh. we're all nerds, so we caught it. But <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly I what happened. The, I saw the coolest thing in the night. It was opening a couple walking there. One had a Wookie backpack, and they were both holding Wookie. Masks. And my that. wife took a picture. And it was like <laughs> it was like just this Wookiee hanging off That's one of their so backs. Cool. That's kind of awesome. If people want to check out your stuff. Where should they go? Yeah, jordandene.com is where you can find all the um, the clothing, and sartorialgeek.com is where you can find the magazine and stuff. Okay. And you can get it digitally or in print. Okay, awesome, Jordan. Thanks so much for coming thank in. Thank you. Thank you. One One Two BK is hosted by Ashley C. Ford and is written and produced by me, Ross Tuttle with Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Tyrese Hester, Kritzi Roberts, Emily Bogosian, and Sarah Grachowski. It is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. It is recorded by Eric Hogaseg and Antonio M. Rosario. Our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker, and our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. 